This morning's sermon is part of an ongoing series we've been doing on Mother's Day um, of founding mothers of Unitarian Universalism, naming some of the many different ways one can mother. We began with Margaret Fuller, who along with Emerson and Thoreau is one of the three most important of our transcendentalist forebears. Her 1845 pamphlet, Women in the 19th Century, was a significant contribution to the women's movement. Next, we move to the three Peabody sisters, especially Elizabeth Peabody, an author herself who published many of those transcendentalists under her own imprint and also became the celebrated founder of kindergartens in America. We explored next the life of Julia Ward Howe, about whom it is said she had six children, learned six languages, and wrote six books. She was most famous for writing the lyrics of the Battle Hymn of the Republic and helped found Mother's Day itself through her Mother's Day proclamation for peace. That's for her what Mother's Day was about, um, you know, not what Hallmark has in mind. We also focused on Mary Moody Emerson, Ralph Waldo Emerson's aunt, who he called his earliest and best teacher. And last year we explored Louisa May Alcott, best known as the author of Little Women. At the time of her death in 1888, she was the country's most popular author and had earned more from her writing than any male author at her time. In future years, I look forward to telling you about some of our other founding mothers, such as Judith Sargent Murray, an early American advocate for women's rights, who was married to John Murray, the founder of the universalist half of our movement. Sophia Lyon Foz, who revolutionized 20th century religious education, and Lydia Marie Child, a strong advocate for social justice in the 19th century. In this summary, my intent is not to overwhelm you with names and dates. You don't have to, there's not going to be a quiz. You don't have to remember all that. Rather, I hope your takeaway will be that as Unitarian Universalists, we are lifted up on the shoulders of giants, many of whom were path-breaking women. Retelling these stories of our UU ancestors allows their, inscribes them further into who we are and allows them to continue to inspire our work for UU values today. In that spirit, our focus this year is on Olympia Brown. If you visit St. Lawrence University, has anybody been there by any chance? Uh, So it's in upstate New York. It's a historically universalist liberal arts college. uh, And you'll find a plaque there honoring her as the distinguished alumna of 1863. It goes like this. It says, she was the first woman to be graduated by the theological school in St. Lawrence University. Her universalist ordination in 1863 made her the first woman in our country to achieve full ministerial standing recognized by a denomination. Pioneer and champion of women's citizens' rights, preacher of universalism, forerunner of a new era. Her flame still burns bright today. To share with you some of the stories behind that plaque, I'll begin with her family. Her parents were pioneers. They were married in 1834 and soon joined a wagon team heading west from Vermont to what was then a frontier area known as the Michigan Territory. It was not for a few more years that Michigan got statehood. Olympia was born a year later in 1835, and it was her parents' kind of frontier spirit, their courage, their fortitude that helped inform her own indomitable spirit. Her aunt, her mother's sister, was another significant early influence on Olympia's lifelong commitment to social justice. Her aunt and uncle lived in nearby Schoolcraft, Michigan, and their house was a station on the Underground Railroad. 
Over the years, her aunt and uncle helped feed, shelter, and hide nearly 1,500 African Americans who had escaped enslavement and were on their way to Canada. Those were the stories that Olympia grew up hearing. Her aunt and mother were also fierce supporters of the equality of women based on their universalist values that all human beings are equally worthy of divine love. That was this lodestar that guided them. They instilled these values into young Olympia Brown, and she put those values into practice against the grain of a sexist society throughout her life. At every school she attended, she resisted any ways that she saw that girls were treated differently than boys and would show that she was capable of memorization, of confident public speaking, or any other assignment that some people tried to reserve for boys alone. Olympia did well in school and was then infuriated to learn that there were no colleges at that time that would admit women. Then in 1854, when she was 19 years old, she received the welcome news of her acceptance to Mount Holyoke, a women's-only college. The reality, however, of her first year there was disappointing. They had these incredibly strict rules for uh, the women who were students there. And the truth was the curriculum just wasn't sufficiently challenging. She arrived there in the first year and was like, I learned nothing because I knew all this already. Uh, After a frustrating freshman year, she transferred to Antioch College in Ohio, and even this more comparatively progressive college, she and some other classmates noticed, wait, every single guest speaker is male. So Olympia led an effort to bring Reverend Antoinette Brown to speak on campus on a Saturday and deliver a sermon on uh, uh, nearby on Sunday. Reverend Antoinette Brown, no relation to Olympia, was the first person that Olympia had, first woman that Olympia had ever heard preach. And Olympia was deeply moved. She wrote about the sermon, the sense of victory lifted me up. I felt as though the kingdom of heaven was at hand. Uh, I don't know if any of you have ever heard Barbara Brown Taylor um, speak. She's a really incredible um, preacher. I remember in seminary the first time I heard her, and I just was thinking back maybe like a year before when I'd heard some people debating women in ministry, and I was just like, they just need to come here, Barbara Brown Taylor, because she is killing it. Like, she's incredible. Um, Hearing a woman minister strengthened Olympia Brown's call to ministry, but as she neared the end of college, she was disappointed to be declined admission from every seminary to which she applied. Many rejection letters explicitly said, we do not believe ladies are called to ministry. Then came unexpected good news, an acceptance letter from St. Lawrence, the Universalist uh, Theological School in upstate New York. Uh, They had no idea at the time that they would later, later hang a plaque in her honor, Indeed, soon after that generic admissions letter came, a personal letter arrived from the president of the university uh, regarding her being the first female student. He wrote, it is unlikely there will ever be any other female students of this university. However, if you feel that God has called you to preach the everlasting gospel, you shall receive no hindrance from me, rather every aid in my power. Sounds all right so far. Uh, But then he added, I do not think women are called to ministry, but I leave that between you and the great head of the church. And Olympia thought, well, that is exactly where it should be left. And she set the letter aside. 
And so in 1861, at the age of 26, she arrived on campus, and the president greeted her with great surprise. He said to her face, oh, I wasn't really expecting you. I thought my letter would discourage you. Clearly, he did not know Olympia Brown. If there was an opening door, she was going to walk through. Over the next two years, she did well in her studies. She was able to find a local congregation in upstate New York. It was actually 20 20 miles away, but it was willing to hire her as a student minister. And to the president's credit, he was true to his word, and he participated in her ordination in 1863. I should clarify that it can be confusing to keep straight Antoinette Brown and Olympia Brown, both of whom were path-breaking women in ministry. Here's the gist. In 1853, an autonomous congregational church in upstate New York ordained Antoinette Brown, making her the first ordained woman uh, minister in this country. And that is a landmark achievement, but her ordination was only recognized by that local congregation, and she left there after, um, I think, less than a year. A decade later, when the St. Lawrence Association of Universalists ordained Olympia Brown in 1863, her ordination was recognized by other Universalist congregations, and she was able to move from congregation to congregation over her career and became the first woman in the U.S. to be ordained by full denominational authority. Uh, so, I mean, kind of a case study in that is so you heard the good news from uh, Uh, Megan, a few weeks ago, that she got a preliminary fellowship with the UUA. That's sort of the equivalent of the universalist half of our heritage. That fellowship goes with you, right? But that fellowship doesn't do you any good if you can't get a job, right? So she got a job. And we're also, and also, we will ordain her. So only a local UU congregation can ordain someone. Truthfully, we could ordain any of you, like, later on this afternoon. We'd actually have 10 days notice to the congregation, but... But no other UU congregation would recognize that ordination, just like with Antoinette Brown. You have to get fellowship with the UUA for it to be recognized. Anyway, talk a lot about polity all day, but let's back to Olympia Brown. After ordination, she spent many years serving universalist congregations, as well as significant time and energy advocating for women's equality in particular the right to vote. She spent four months in the summer of 1867 traveling around Kansas to promote women's suffrage. And I want to just remind you what Kansas was like in 1867. She said she would get in a wagon, and they would just kind of head in the general direction that they thought they were going to, then they'd wait to meet someone else to ask directions, and then kind of head in the general, you know, and just kind of hope you got there and didn't get caught by wildfire in the meantime. Often she had to get up at 4 o'clock in the morning that summer, eat a hasty breakfast, then set out on about a, usually about an 8 or 10 hour drive to a meeting 40 or 50 miles away. And at those meetings, she was consistently a powerful and um, persuasive speaker. I'll give you just one example of her words. She said, this is the great argument in favor of the enfranchisement of women. It is not so much the repealing of wicked laws or the establishment of justice, although both of those are important, as it is that women should gain that self-respect and independence which is characteristic of the free. I think that's an incredibly smart and persuasive argument, that it is about women needing the freedom and autonomy to have self-respect and independence. I would love to have seen uh, Olympia Brown in a debate with Philip Schlafly, if any of you know that, that name, who helped torpedo the Equal Rights Amendment, which, by the way, seems to be coming back. If you've been watching the news, we're one state away from the ERA passing and then getting uh, Congress to Google that later. It could happen. Uh, 
I should hasten to add that a few years later, uh, Olympia did marry a supportive man and become the mother of two children, but she remained the Reverend Olympia Brown. And on the occasion that someone would refer to her as Mrs. Willis, it was said that she made her name and title clear in a way that people rarely made that mistake a second time. In 1887, when she was 52 years old, she resigned from serving her fourth congregation to again work full-time for women's suffrage. I'll limit myself to only one of the many remarkable stories. This comes from the end of her decades-long activism. Uh, A month after the end of World War I, she and other suffragettes were outraged at President Wilson. He regularly championed himself as the head of the greatest democracy on earth, and they found that incredibly galling when half of the citizens in that democracy, the female half, could not vote. And on a December day in 1918, the suffragettes were burning copies of Wilson's speeches outside of the White House. And it's said that a hush fell over that raucous crowd as they saw a small aged woman move from her place in the shadows and the urn um, uh, lit up her face in the torchlight. And they recognized this veteran as the 83-year-old Reverend Olympia Brown. She was a friend and colleague for years of Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, both of whom had died a decade earlier. I think it's... It's not significant to miss like why the crowd was so, you know, Olympia was one of the few people alive who had been like in the trenches with Stanton and with Susan B. Anthony. Uh, so Reverend Brown held aloft a sheet of papers. It was the speech that Wilson had recently made upon his arrival in France after the end of World War I. And as she thrust the papers into the flames, she cried out in a clear, firm voice, America has fought for France and for the common cause of liberty. I have fought for liberty for 70 years, and I protest against the president leaving, out, leaving our country with this old fight here unwon. A moment of silence, and then the crowd burst into applause and continued to cheer as her companions helped that 83-year-old down from the base of the statue that she had climbed up onto to, to give her speech. Less than two years later, on August 18, 1920, the final state needing to, needed to ratify the 19th Amendment fell into place, securing women's right to vote. And on September 12th, a few weeks after that historic victory, the Reverend Olympia Brown, at the age of 85, was invited to return to that pulpit that she had left decades earlier, the last congregation she had served as minister, the Universalist Church in Racine, Wisconsin. And that morning she preached what we know now was her final sermon. She titled it, The Opening Doors. In her introduction, she said, It is now nearly 33 years since I resigned my pastorate in this church. That is a long time, and many things have happened. But the grandest thing has been the lifting up of the gates and the opening of the doors to the women of America, giving liberty to 27 million women, thus opening them to new and larger life and higher ideals. And she said, It is worth a lifetime to behold the victory. Less than two months later, on November 2nd, 1920, millions of women in the United States did vote for the first time. Reverend Olympia Brown was one of the first in line. If there was an opening door, she was going to enter. She lived a few more happy years and voted in a few more elections. Notably, in 1926, at the age of 91, she visited Europe for the first time, as you do at 91. 
and spent several weeks touring. A few months after returning home, she died suddenly after a brief illness. For now, I'll leave you with an excerpt from the conclusion to her final sermon. Reflecting on these universalist values that had shaped her long life, she spoke words that have become famous and remain famous a century later in our Unitarian Universalist tradition. She said, Dear friends, stand by this faith. Work for it. Sacrifice for it. For there is nothing in all the world so important to you as to be loyal to this faith which has placed before you the loftiest ideals, which has comforted you in sorrow, strengthened you for noble duty, and made the world beautiful for you. Do not demand immediate results, but rejoice that you are worthy to be entrusted with this great message and that you are strong enough to work for a great true principle without counting the cost. So go on, finding ever new applications of these truths and new enjoyments in their contemplation. That great true principle for her was universalism, the inherent worth and dignity of every person, without exception. For the Reverend Olympia Brown, acting for universalism meant working and acting for the equality of women. As you look around the world today, what in particular does universalism call you to do? What in particular does the inherent worth and dignity of every person call you to do? tell you just one final piece of kind of the rest of the story. So, you know, what's happened in the hundred years since Olympia Brown helped open those um, doors? Well, I guess since the vote, not since she became a, a minister, but that in 1925, when Olympia Brown died, she was actually disheartened that there were only at that time about 61 uh, women universalist ministers. Uh, it actually got worse, uh, so such that by 1961, uh, for a confluence of historical reasons, so from 1925 to 1961, there were virtually no women ministers when the Universalist Church in America merged with the American Unitarian Association to form the Unitarian Universalist Association in 1961. But then it started getting better. So in like 1970, for example, uh, so the beginning of second wave feminism, you had about to the very beginning, you had about 2% of UU ministers were women. Uh, but fast forward to today, more than half of active UU ministers are women. Uh, and I believe about two-thirds of UU seminarians are women uh, today. And we have also, you know, uh, two years ago, elected our first woman president. So the Reverend Susan Frederick Gray is the president of the Unitarian Universal Association and will be for another four years. Um, too long in coming, but uh, and that's a whole story that we could get into around the, the women who uh, ran for UUA president. Um, but I think the invitation to keep in mind is, so, you know, Olympia Brown, she couldn't do all things, but she's, what she could do was with her life and with her voice was to advocate and open doors for herself and for other women. So, again, I think the question for each of us becomes, what doors can we open for ourselves and for others? So as you continue your journey, continue your journey in love. Love for yourself and love for all people. Uh, Do justice and make peace. As you go, whatever taste or touch you've had in this time and place of hope, of love, of peace or joy, that goes with you out into the world. We're different for having spent this time together. May you live boldly. May you live with thanksgiving.